Welcome to another episode of Brain and Butter. It's Austin and Flora here today, and we're going to talk about marijuana addiction. Our aim is to delve deep into the biopsychosocial aspect of marijuana addiction and explaining how nature and nurture plays a role in this mental disease. We're also going to touch upon risk and resilience and how it can influence the onset and development of addiction. Today on Brain and Butter, we're joined by Yana Kuzain. Yana performs research in neuroscience of addiction lab at Erasmus University in Rotterdam. She investigates the interaction between cognition, brain development, and the environment in individual trajectories of risk and resilience, with a central question to her studies being why some individuals develop an addiction and others do not. Yana, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, I'm really excited. <laughs> So Jana, we want to start off with, does cannabis addiction exist? What do you think? We wouldn't have this podcast episode if it wouldn't, right? <laughs> A lot of people are still debating uh, to what extent cannabis addiction exists. And this debate already stems from, I think, the early past century. And I'm not directly going to give an answer, but I think in the beginning of the past century, we thought the core of addiction is this physical dependence. And mm -hmm. then we investigate. We invested a lot into uh, developing anti-withdrawal medication, and those work excellent. But we're still left with people that relapse. Let's say seventy percent. So apparently, this physical part isn't necessarily the core of addiction. And this was already in in the sixties recognized by the World Health Organization, where they really said like addiction is actually the inability to control your behavior. And this is actually more of a mental process necessarily than a physical process. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people still believe that cannabis doesn't cause this physical dependence and therefore think it's not addictive, uh, but it actually does cause physical dependence and about 50% experiences withdrawal symptoms. So from that perspective, cannabis addiction is really real. And I think another argument for its existence is the number of people in a clinic. And especially among young people, uh, adolescents and young adults, it's actually the number one disorder in, in addiction treatment centers, sometimes even more than alcohol. And these numbers really sharply contrast with the public opinion about whether it exists, mm -hmm. yes or no. It clearly does because people are suffering from it. Uh, so we should really attend to that. So there's a lot to unpack there. And I think my first idea about cannabis addiction would be that it doesn't exist physiologically in the body, but maybe it exists somewhere in the brain specifically. But otherwise, I would have attributed it more to a psychological pinning. But it sounds like you've made some discoveries, piecing together several scientist reviews that have discovered more of a physiological dependency on cannabis? I think this is one of the milestone projects from, let's say, the past uh, 20 years, uh, the discovery of uh, cannabis withdrawal. And it's also now one of the DSM criteria in the DSM-5. Mm -hmm. So it does exist, but it's important to realize, like if you look at the addiction criteria from the DSM, then we have uh, multiple symptoms and the physical part is only two out of the rest. So mm. there are okay. 11 symptoms uh, and physical and psychological dependence. We don't really make that difference that clearly in, in, in addiction. I think for me, it's more a holistic view in the sense that mm -hmm. 
body and mind are all connected and mm -hmm. well, our mind is kind of the core in that. So the addiction is somewhere nested in your brain. And I also wonder about epigenetics when it comes to developing cannabis disorder. Are there any neuromarkers or genetic factors that can enhance the probability that you will develop CUB? I think this is similar for all addictions that in part your genes play a massive role but also your environment. And yeah. we know that the younger you are, the more the environment plays a role in determining how much you're using and the problems you're experiencing. And the older you get, the more genetics explain the variance in the pathological behaviors mm. that emerge. But you should also realize that compared to other addictions, the research on cannabis use disorder is like in its infancy. There aren't that many studies yet out there that really mm investigate participants that do meet the DSM criteria for addiction. So for example, I think two years ago, I looked into the literature and for every thousand studies on alcohol use disorder and neuroimaging, there was one in cannabis. So this is a very sharp contrast. Mm -hmm. uh, so from yeah. that perspective, we're in its infancy, but I think the first studies we did, um, what we really wanted to do is see the similarities and differences between cannabis use disorder and, and other addictions. And I was kind of surprised in the beginning that the mechanisms in the brain look actually pretty similar when you talk mm -hmm. about individuals that really have a cannabis use disorder. So you have the substance itself, which might have different effects for different substances, and you have the addiction and the addiction, the mechanisms underlying this, this inability to control your behavior are quite similar across different substances. And can you explain what happens in the brain or what happens physiologically when you develop an addiction? Like what changes compared to like a healthy individual? Let's say you have prominent theories that believe that the addiction is kind of an imbalance between two systems. So on one hand, you have this very strong motivational system that becomes very much tuned towards the substance itself and everything that has to do with it, like cues. This could be friends, this could be the smell of cannabis, this could be viewing a cannabis sign somewhere in the city and you have very strong responses that develop towards those cues. And then you have the cognitive control part that as long as you're still able to regulate your own behavior and able to say like, well, I'm going to use in this moment, but not in this moment because I just have other important obligations, then you're kind of fine. So as long as behavior control is in check, you're okay. And then in individuals with a substance use disorder, behavioral control is thought to be compromised. But again, this is a very simplistic view. And we also know that there is a lot of debate about the use of the brain model of addiction, because we've been using it, I think, since 2000, more or less, so 20 years. Uh, people argue that actually there isn't that much advancement yet in treatment of addiction. We're still left with about 70% of people that relapse. So it's quite a chronic disorder for many. And this doesn't really matter if it's an opiate addiction or a cannabis addiction. And with those relapses, do you see a difference in when those relapses occur depending on someone's age? Because as we increase in age, don't we get better at cognitively controlling our behavior? This is a tricky question. And I, I think I really would love to conduct a study to investigate this, like the role of age and the developing brain into these mechanisms. So for one perspective, the younger brain is more flexible, easier to adapt to changing situations. So it exactly. could also, 
it could draw you into pathological behavior, but it also could mean that it easily drags you out. Yeah. And the adult brain is less flexible. So okay. once cognitive control is lost, kind of, you could mm -hmm. think about it being more difficult to actually regain control over your own behavior. But in science, like adolescent psychiatry and adult psychiatry are kind of separated. So there aren't really studies that compare the impact of age on recovery potential or relapse. We'll try to figure that out, but it takes uh, decades probably. And if you enter treatment and uh, we talk about the reversibility of addiction, is there a point when there is no way back? So like you have structural changes or like physiological changes that are so deeply ingrained that you cannot really switch it back to completely healthy patterns? I'm not sure if this is the case. I think the brain stays quite flexible throughout life and is this old view that we were born with a specific set of neurons and what happens kind of deeply ingrained into your own brain structure and function and doesn't change anymore. I'm not sure if that's the, the case and also in the case for cannabis, cannabis or THC interacts with the endocannabinoid system, which is basically throughout your entire brain interacting with other neurotransmitter system involved in learning, memory, but also your physique, your yeah. immune response, like it's everywhere. And I think there's still a lot of potential for every brain to recover, but we have to find the right angle. And maybe mm -hmm. the brain itself is not the starting point and we need to start maybe outside the brain. Yeah, I just had this question in mind because a friend of mine was smoking weed for I think at least five years, like every day, he, he wanted to stop and slowly but steady he, he did. But he claims that cannabis made him a bit more dull. I was wondering if it's actually true when we look at science. If you look at the effects of cannabis, and let's try to separate the mechanisms surrounding the addiction and yeah. the mechanisms surrounding like THC exposure, then... Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, in the case of THC, there is kind of good news that we often see in studies that if people stop using, that a lot of the cognitive deficits kind of recover. It doesn't nice. mean that it takes, well, it takes time and effort. Uh, you have to start over maybe uh, in some regards, but there is more potential for recovery in cannabis than, for example, with cocaine or erect toxic damage is probably less severe for cannabis than for other uh, substances. But still, when you develop the addiction, for example, these associations with the cues um, in your environment, they stay so strong for a very long time and will be able to trigger mm -hmm. craving for many, many, many years. So it takes a very long time. I don't know if you ever smoked cigarettes, for example, mm -hmm. yeah. or kind of it stays in your system yeah. uh, for a very long time. And it takes time to not feel those things anymore. Yes, definitely. Even today, I can, uh, I, I hate cigarettes, but like if I see one in the right situation, I just get the trigger or the desire mm -hmm. to have one. Yeah. And then I have that cognitive top down. No, that's a terrible idea. I don't <laughs> want that. But like, you know, that trigger is still prevalent even to this day, mm -hmm. you know, a decade after no longer smoking. And I was also wondering when I was reading about addiction research in general, that there are certain personality traits that can make you more prone to develop addiction. So for example, risk seeking or impulsivity. And I wonder, is there any specifics that leads you to develop a cannabis addiction and not like another addiction? 
No, I think there are more general risk factors. Mm. And uh, the one you're talking about, like impulsivity risk seeking, is also very much tied into uh, youth and development yeah. as well. And I think they, they are strong predictors of whether you will engage in risk behaviors. Yeah. And these risk behaviors might involve actual substance use yeah. with your friends, which may escalate. And also, there is a lot of research into, let's say, the role of ADHD or like externalizing disorders and internalizing disorders in shaping the problems that people will experience from cannabis. And this is kind of also the same as for other, other addictions, that there is a very high comorbidity. Some would argue that the externalizing disorders are more linked to the heaviness of use, so whether you will use yeah. and whether you will escalate, and that the internalizing disorders, the anxiety and the depression are more linked to the pathology and, and the loss of control and, and well, self-medication as well. But they're very, they're highly comorbid. So if you look at cannabis, people with a cannabis use disorder and substantial part suffers from depression or depressive symptoms and anxiety symptoms. And the other way around, it's not the case that everyone with anxiety uses cannabis. But in this group of heavy cannabis users, also ADHD is very prevalent. It kind of feels like the addiction is the tip of the iceberg and below it, there are probably other mental health disorders that needs to be treated and also uh, make you more likely to yeah, develop. Yeah, and, and uh, a major risk factor for, for addiction is the extent to which you use to cope with life, with feelings, with behavior. And this is, the, we call it coping motives. And they're a stronger predictor of the severity of addiction than, for example, social motives or enhancement mm. motives. So used to really enhance pleasant feelings. Yeah, so coping motives are definitely also a risk factor and self-medication. And you see this a lot in, in cannabis users. And I think also one aspect kind of unique to cannabis use is also its relationship with sleep, which is very dual because we know cannabis can help you with sleep. And it's different than with alcohol. Alcohol makes you fall asleep easily, but you wake up during the night and, and your sleep is less deep. But with cannabis, there are signs that it actually helps you a little bit, but it's also a way of self-medication. So if you mm -hmm. have problems with sleep and you use cannabis, then, then you kind of develop a cycle that you can't sleep without anymore. Mm -hmm. A long time ago, I heard a fact, and I'm curious if it's actually true, that habitual cannabis users, it'll help them fall asleep and sleep well, but it'd be beneficial for them to take about a week off of cannabis use so they can catch up on either REM or NREM sleep cycles. This is very specific, but... I do think the general idea is that make sure that you don't use daily, okay. that you still have non-use days in between. But it's always the question, like also with the withdrawal symptoms, withdrawal symptoms include lack of sleep, include huh. enhanced feelings of anxiety and depression. And then you can kind of already see the cycle emerging. Are you actually having less problems because of cannabis use or is cannabis kind of getting you away from these withdrawal symptoms and you actually think you're feeling better. And we see that people that quit fully actually do better in the long term. Right. So that initial period of moving away from cannabis might be really hard and yeah. you might think, oh, this is actually really helping me. But mm -hmm. if you can get past that period, you might see overall improvement. 
Yeah, and I think that's also one of the major problems with cannabis is kind of it causes this foggy brain and that stays there for a very long time. And we know that cannabis mm-hmm. stays can stay in your system quite long and the subacute effects, it, it varies from person to person, but mm-hmm. can be there for a longer period of time. And if youth are using in schools, let's say during mm-hmm. the day, imagine what will happen to their learning outcomes if you just have this foggy brain all the time. And this is different yes. from alcohol because al- alcohol is often consumed in large amounts in binge episodes during weekends. Uh-huh. And or then, in the night, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and cannabis use kind of slumbers throughout the day. Uh, so it has a, a, a more strong uh, impact on, on actual cognitive performance during school. And what we see in cannabis use is actually all of them take more time to complete school. And we mentioned briefly these risk and resilience factors. I was wondering, is there any tool or method to identify, for example, in adolescents, uh, individuals who might be at risk to prevent them to develop addiction, any kind, but also uh, cannabis addiction? In an ideal world, you <laughs> would say yes. And I think addiction is a very, very complex phenomenon. And there are many social, genetic so many factors that play a role and each of them explains a small amount in the variance of the behavior that we see. If you look at youth, then we know what is most successful is start with the social environment. And we know that youth with mental health problems, anxiety, depression and ADHD are at risk. So those groups uh, should definitely take care about their, think about their cannabis use more closely, but it's often initiated in groups. So I think it's also important for groups, for your, for your group of friends to discuss what, with each other, like what is actually a healthy way of using this and how do mm. we take care of each other and do we know what the other is really suffering from? And if you're not in a good place, then it's never a good thing to start using cannabis. Because then it's what you also said, it's part of the coping mechanism. So yeah. it's not about leisure or like... For example, I'm excited or interested to see what would happen like if I use this substance, but more like a coping mechanism. And that can be like a maladaptive pattern to mm-hmm. just cope with any negative feelings or negative life stressors. Exactly. Um, that, exactly. that you and just use the substance. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not here to basically tell the world like you shouldn't do drugs or you shouldn't use cannabis. But it's like really pay close attention to how you're feeling. And, and where you're at at the moment and based on that, make a decision. And if you're not in a good place, then don't do drugs. <laughs> My sister said something that uh, really stuck with me a long time ago. She said, if you're going to do drugs to have fun, you might not have the right mindset ahead of time. But if you're already having fun and you think, oh, some drugs might actually make this more fun, then that's more of a mindset that will be healthy because you're coming from a healthy place already and then just throwing something on top of it rather than coming from an unhealthy place and then throwing drugs on mm-hmm. it to try and improve yourself. Yeah, I think that kind of makes sense. And I think that's also a difficult part with addiction. All of us are, or like most of us are familiar with using some substances, but not all of us develops an addiction, right? So I think it's also the acknowledgement that it is a mental disease and people cannot just oh, like oh, come on just like stop using it you know like what is the problem <laughs> there's this ignorance or turning the blind eye of like why can some people not stop this uh, maladaptive behavior and but we would never say this if someone has like glucose intolerance i think it makes addiction as an especially like complex phenomena also to treat 
Yeah, you make a very important point. And I think it also depends a bit on the definition of addiction. And what I've experienced is that people think differently about the definition of an opiate addiction or smoking addiction or cocaine addiction and a cannabis addiction and a chocolate addiction. Hmm. And we all use the same words, but we describe it differently. And we kind of argue that Let's, let's move to these daily users of a substance. I think everyone realizes that if you look at people who are using alcohol daily, that not all of them have an alcohol use disorder. Alcohol is pretty much socially accepted and there are many people that use like a glass of wine or drink one beer a day and we don't necessarily see them as an addict. But think about how you judge someone who uses a joint daily. Would you mm -hmm. think, hey, this is an addict? Or are you using the same definition and thinking like, hmm, some people can handle this really well, but for others, it's actually a problem. It's a sign of problematic behavior because they kind of need it to end their day and to feel okay. And when you think of someone who is using heroin, then of course you think like if they use once a day, they're an addict. But no. it's the same word. Hmm. Well, in, in psychiatry, the definition of addiction is the same regardless of the substance. And it's about your inability to control your own behavior and the massive psychosocial impact it has on your life. And let's move to chocolate addiction. I think a lot of people would say, well, I'm really addicted to chocolate. And they know their definition of chocolate addiction is very different from an heroin addiction, but they use the same word. But think about the situation where there might actually be people that really use it so uncontrollably and they can't function without and they need to go like during work go to the supermarket again and get chocolate again at night eat chocolate before they fall asleep and you would argue yeah maybe chocolate addiction for this one individual might actually exist mm -hmm. so it's kind of a, a spectrum where the most severe cases are actually the ones suffering from a um, substance use disorder and what I also find kind of astonishing is that when I talk about gambling addiction, everyone knows that it exists. There is no doubt about people suffering massively from a gambling addiction. No. And then they argue that cannabis addiction doesn't exist because the substance itself is not addictive enough. And then mm. I think like, yeah, but there are behavioral addictions where not even a substance is involved. And then they think, oh yeah, maybe cannabis addiction does exist. And you just need to look at the user differently and judge them one by one and also think about your own experiences with cannabis. Like we can't argue because your own experience is good that someone else also, their bad experience is something they shouldn't bother about. Take these complaints seriously. And it might well be that you respond very differently than someone else in the same substance. Yeah, and I think it's, it's crazy how the differentiation between a psychological addiction and like your physical addiction. So if the substance, for example, causes a physical addiction, of course, then it, it is an addiction. But if it's psychological addiction, I think it's as powerful or even more powerful, you know, than if it causes a physical addiction or not. So I think it's more powerful because that's for us, at least a thing that we can, we have more difficulty to treat this part. And the lack of control is really this core of addiction and the withdrawal symptoms we can counteract. We have medicine to prevent that. And we're still left with a lot of people relapse, even without withdrawal symptoms. And how do you, if we touched upon it already, how do you treat cannabis addiction at, at this point? At this uh, point, the approach is very similar to other addictions. And uh, we often use a set of cognitive behavioral therapy 
But it's important to realize that, again, there are no specific treatments approved for cannabis use disorder. No. There are very few clinical trials running. This is partly, I think, due to the stigma no. surrounding the existence of cannabis use disorder still. And this debate between it's good, it's bad, it's good, it's bad, but well, it's probably both. <laughs> Yeah, I recently heard about this uh, treatment for addiction in general called contingency uh, management yeah. training. I was interested how it happens when an addict quits substance use, for example, and uh, doesn't use a substance for like months, and then something good happens, and then there is the relapse. For me, it was for first sight kind of counterintuitive because I was like, oh, if something good happens, like why um, does the relapse happen? But then I read about it and this article claimed that because the reward mechanisms, so like when you develop an addiction, your re uh, reward mechanism is out of balance. And then if you're absent, there's little reward involved. And when there's something happened, it, it jumps. So then it triggers you to use a substance and like celebrate. And that's why it was for alcohol in that specific case. And that's why um, you relapse. So then I was like, oh, but it must be like a training for this, right? And then I uh, read about this training that they constantly give you reward to kind of maintain that state. So it doesn't happen that if something good actually happens in your life or something rewarding, then it triggers the, the addiction behavior again. Yeah, this is also a very interesting uh, perspective. And I do think that the triggers for someone with a, with a cannabis use disorder or another addiction are very different. And that's mm. also why our treatment isn't that effective, because we're dealing with a very heterogeneous population that has different points of origin of where they started with their use and how it developed and how it escalated, but also different trajectories outwards. And we do know that contingency management is actually like quite a promising. It's, it's very counterintuitive because giving people money to not use sounds very strange. But it can be very helpful. Like when you're suffering from an addiction, there aren't that many things that trigger reward anymore. And you're just focused on your use and recovery and getting the drugs. And money still is a thing that we really need, right, to function. So yeah. sometimes this money is just enough to keep them off the substance for long enough to really give them the ability to, to regain some control over their use. But again, so many therapies are not working that effectively as what we hope they would but and i think it's yeah it really depends depends on the person like i had this conversation with a friend of mine and he said that one thing that really helped him like he admitted that yeah sometimes life is just not interesting that much you know like you have the daily your day and it's um yeah pretty average but that's also fine because he was like yeah before that he was always seeking this sensation or extra sensations or some mind alteration and he was like yeah now i have days when it's it's very boring like life is pretty great but that's also okay so i don't need to take a substance to to make it more fun like there like he was like yeah it was the most difficult he's also in uh in the creative industry so he was saying that yeah like that's the most difficult part to accept that there are days that are just very boring so but that's also part of life so i think it's um yeah, imagine like if there wouldn't be a boring day, uh, feelings of, of sadness, depression, anxiety, would there be happiness, mm -hmm. right? I think you need to contrast yeah, as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Can't have the lightness without dark. I think so. Yeah. But so. our brain 
remains like this very, very complex puzzle. And speaking of complex puzzles, I'm curious what brought your attention to cannabis use disorder? Mm, I think that was kind of an accident. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was very much interested in addiction mm -hmm. and this is kind of a personal angle because when I grew up, we took care of a 15 year old. So my mom took a 15 year old, she fostered her. And back then she came from a very complex, big family and wasn't able to live at home anymore. And we had so much fun. So she was 15, I was five and I really saw her as a big sister. And then she kind of disappeared. And as a child, I didn't know the story very well, but flash forward 10 years, we got a call from a clinic and they said, your daughter is here and she's recovering and can finally go home. And we're like, okay, uh, what's happening? And she suffered from a heroin addiction, was trying to recuperate and she came home. So uh, we embraced her. She came home. It was was a little bit scary with thinking like, okay, what should we do with her stuff? Is she going to steal stuff? Is she going to... Mm -hmm. But it was a very nice weekend again. And then she relapsed. Uh, and again, she relapsed. And this happened like three times. She came back three times. And then she disappeared. And we never really know, uh, knew what happened to her. We were never able to find out. So I assume she isn't there anymore. Otherwise, she would be we would have been able to trace her. For me, this moment, like for me, she was a normal teen, teenager. So I mm -hmm. didn't really see the complexity behind her start of life. And, and then she had a, a boyfriend who was using heroin and that's how she got into it. And for me, like, how can someone just lose control over the behaviors and others don't even being in the same social situation? That kind of triggered me to want to study addiction already from a very early age. And then I started off with preclinical research. So really animal models of addiction. And then I figured out like, yeah, I need to move towards human research to really mm. uh, figure things out. And then this position, because I was an animal researcher, like when I applied for PhD positions, they really didn't know yet to what extent I was able to work with complex humans. And I can totally understand okay. that because I can work with complex animals, but not necessarily with humans. And they thought I would fit a project about cannabis better because this population was kind of less severe or, or more approachable. So that's how I, I started with uh, investigating cannabis addiction and got, then it got mm. kind of stuck. And mm -hmm. I remember this, this specific moment when I went to a conference for the first time. And it was with all my addiction, fellow PhDs, one alcohol addiction, one cocaine addiction, one heroin addiction, and me cannabis addiction. And they got very interesting questions about the pathology, the mechanisms. And every person that visited my poster was like, yeah, but cannabis addiction doesn't exist. And then you start over with this whole discussion mm. again. And that kind of fueled this power in me to really want to do something about it and also get the recognition yeah. And really try to convince people, like, why can you believe there are people that use daily in, in the context of alcohol? Why, why can you believe that there's a difference within daily users? And why can't you for cannabis? What is, what is this seed that is so strong that makes people think already for so many decades that mm. it might not be addictive? I really don't know. <laughs> and yet today, now it's the most sought after treatment. Yeah, for young people, yeah, for, for uh, young adults and adolescents, yeah. Do you think there's something there with the changing of culture and generations? 
we do see that in areas that legalize that there is a slight increase in treatment demands and also uh, prevalence of more heavy use among young people. And I do think culture or your social environment, we already talked about this, plays a massive uh, role. And legal context is part of this, right? Mm -hmm. If you're able to buy your cannabis on every corner of the street and you have a lot of people in your environment that use it just without really paying that much attention to it, then the chance of you maybe developing psychosocial problems or someone telling you off for using cannabis is maybe a little bit smaller. Okay. So imagine being in the Netherlands. That was at least our hypothesis. And we're in this bubble where it's kind of, uh, we thought it's accepted. And let's compare that to Texas, where mm -hmm. you still and could end up in jail for using cannabis. Or, um, then perhaps the psychosocial problems that those people, so the symptoms they experience from cannabis use are very different. And we conducted this study, and it was a neuroimaging study, where we looked at similarities and differences. So what replicates across... Uh, space and time and what are differences. Actually, we found the opposite effect. So the people in Texas were really involved into these cannabis bubbles. They were surrounded by people that were more positive about cannabis. So they actually experienced less psychosocial problems. And in the Netherlands, we saw that people actually didn't feel their environment was very positive, positive mm. about use. And also their country wasn't really that positive about use. And that related to brain functioning in exactly the opposite direction as in the Texas sample. Hmm. We still need to replicate these findings, but I th do think it's kind of important to realize culture plays a role, policy plays a role, but the effect of legalization isn't necessarily the same depending on the area where you're in. Hmm. Uh, and people might still think very differently about cannabis use depending where you are. And as to wrap it up, if... If you could give a message or like uh, an advice for people who are at risk or who have a friend or see people who are at risk to develop a cannabis addiction, what would you, what would you advise? What can these, uh, especially adolescent people do in these scenarios? Yeah, and I think there's one important risk factor that we didn't talk about that, and it's a risk for psychosis. And we do know that there's probably a causal link between cannabis use and psychosis and we do know that genetic vulnerability plays a role in this and this is one of the most negative uh, consequences of, of cannabis it's not that prevalent but if you have someone in your family that suffers from psychosis or then definitely be very 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 careful uh, with cannabis use and the other advice would yeah pay attention to your friends family and also try to avoid daily use. I think that's like the best remedy against addiction is to avoid daily use and introduce these non-use days if you really feel so strongly about, uh, about use. Could yeah. you put a golden mean on what the appropriate amount of use for cannabis would be for the average individual? No, I think this really differs from person to person. Uh -huh. And I think someone could really have a nasty experience from just using once. Okay. Especially yeah. in the case of psychosis and anxiety. Uh, mm -hmm. It can really in trigger an anxiety. And for some people, that limit is reached when they use multiple times a day. Okay. Yeah. So really listen to your own body. And I think this is a very important message that we should all em embrace these mixed 
effects of cannabis and don't judge someone else based on our own experience. Mm -hmm. Someone could might experience totally different effects than you have. And that's why it's important to be mindful. Like if you are in an environment where people use for the first time, pay a close eye to, to their behavior and think about it. Like, is this really something they should do? And again, if you're in a negative mood mindset, avoid using. And I really think that cannabis is one of those substances that can have very different effects based on the setting, based on your state of mind at the moment, uh, and also like your personality. I can imagine that if you're, if you're a very anxious individual, then it's probably not the best, or you are in a very stressful period or a mental state that I think it's really not a good idea to use cannabis because I can I think that can really backfire and cause not a relief and and a relaxed mood but quite the opposite so I think it's also very important to yeah sync with your your state at the moment because cannabis can I think trigger very different uh, experiences yeah exactly and I think also that's like one of the negative sides of our own policy in the Netherlands so the gedoogbeleid is that coffee shop owners have little control over the products. Officially, they're not allowed to test what's in there. And they often know, and some of them invest a lot in trying to get these qualities reports about the, the stuff they're selling. And I think like if you would be in an environment where it's really legal, this also gives you more control over what you're selling and, and more responsibility of what you're selling and uh, think about the potential negative consequences as well and about prevention and treatment. And the state is where we are in right now in the Netherlands. We're kind of stuck and uh, we're not able to help the ones that really need help at the moment. And I also think that for the coffee shop owners, like a lot of them really invest in their clients and trying to make it as safe as possible. But as long as there are no control over products and no rules about products, then uh, you're kind of stuck. Yeah, but I do hope that with continuous conversations and, and, and research, there, there will be an also policy regulation about this because I think it's needed. And yeah, there is, I, I think we can conclude that there is definitely such thing as cannabis addiction so yes it exists <laughs> so that's that's the takeaway message and we want to thank you a lot to join us today and tell very insightful information thank you good luck <laughs>